HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi there, I'm Greg from Kapow. Visit us at kapow.com to check out our unique collection of everyday reusable products designed to help you do more with less. C-U-P-P-O-W.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you late and live on Heritage Radio Network from Roberta's Pizzeria in where, Stas? Where's it? Yeah, that's actually, you know what? That's not bad. I mean, Bushwick! Oh my God, oh, wait, ooh, it trailed off at the end. Bushwick, Brooklyn. Call your questions to 718-497-2128. That's uh, 718-497-2128. Jack Inslee, our intrepid Jack Inslee, is in Madison, Wisconsin today. What's he doing over there? Do you know? Uh, he sent me a picture of him with cows. C- cows. 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 <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll have to ask him that when he gets back. Instead, we have uh, Liz. Hi there. Very excited to be here. Nice. Well, I'm sorry I'm so freaking late, uh, <laughs> as usual, but it means you get an abbreviated first, first-time first engineering with us, but uh, hopefully you enjoy it. And we have Rebecca. Hello. Hello, Rebecca. Running the chat. How are you? Oh, Rebecca's running the chat. Yep. She, she is Booker and Dax's... Social media... Director? It sounds like a camp counselorship. Director Social media director. Director's fine. Or like uh, like something more powerful. Oh, all right. Well, Stas is calling up last week's questions. I have them up. And the one that you should get to is... Read it. You know which one it is. It's oh, a okay. chickpea. Didn't we... I didn't answer no, the chickpea question. you said... Um, I read it. Uh, vegan Internet has gotten very excited this year over making meringue out of chickpea cooking liquid. Turns out that the liquid from a can of chickpeas, which people are calling aquafaba... Aquafaba. Whips up like egg whites. I'm previously, I've previously made vegan meringues, pavlova, etc., using VersaWhip 600K, and this stuff works almost as well. Here's my question. I don't usually buy canned chickpeas. I prefer to cook them in my pressure cooker. So far, the liquid from my pressure cooker... For my pressure-cooked chickpeas, hasn't whipped up the same way. When I tried it, it only got slightly frothy, didn't foam up at all. Any guesses as to why it doesn't work like liquid from a can? Okay. First of all, uh, I prefer it when you use <laughs> whip. <laughs> whip. Uh, all right. Well, I don't know. I looked up on the Internet uh, last week or the week before. I can't remember. And there is a person, I forget their name because I have it on the file from last week, who uh, was successful in making their own um, their own 
like uh, aquafaba with uh, chickpeas. A couple of things I would look out for. First of all, I would find uh, this person on the internet whose name I wish I could remember who made their own. I think my Google search was something really simple, stupid, like DIY uh, aquafaba or something like this. Um, they, I think, were using. Cons- I remember from your question that you were you, you were not getting the consistency that you wanted when it was done. Now, remember, you have to let it cool off to see what kind of backset you're going to get from any starch that comes out of it to see what the actual texture is going to be. Uh, and then I also noticed you said that if it wasn't the right texture, you boiled it down. Maybe it's maybe you're doing too much boiling. My my recollection is that the person who was uh, doing it online was cooking it for a relatively short amount of time, like they were soaking overnight, and then they were only doing something like a fifteen or twenty minute cook at. 15 psi. Now that may be maybe too low. I'm not. I'm not sure. But they were also probably using less water uh, to do it. But some other things you might want to look into. Because um, remember, the way that they make canned chickpeas is they soak uh, chickpeas and then they put them in the can with a prescribed amount of water and then they put them in a retort, i.e. a pressure cooker, until they're done. They cook them considerably longer than 15 minutes, I think. Uh, but um, anyway, that's how they're actually made, so you should be able to do it. I wonder whether you're using a different variety of chickpea. There are two ma- – I mean there are a bunch of different varietals, but they're, you know, the two main varieties are kind of the larger uh, um, uh, you know, American kind of ones and the, and the smaller uh, ones, like the Indian-style ones. Uh, and I think all of the canned ones and the aquafaba is probably made from the larger ones. Now, I looked up and the aquafaba website, they still haven't, I guess, gotten enough money to figure out what the science is behind it. So, you know, presumably there's uh, a protein in there that's whipping up. <laughs> whipping up, and uh, presumably also some uh, starch uh, thickening break, breaking out of it. So, you know, perhaps you're being too gentle, and they're not getting busted up enough, and you're not releasing enough crap into the water. I I don't know, but uh, I would look up that person on the web who uh, seems to be able to get because uh, they 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 said that they whip, whipped it up fine because they also don't buy um, canned uh, chickpeas. What do you think? Good, good. Mm-hmm. Did I hear a call coming? We do have a caller. Here he is. All right, caller, you were on the air. Hey, Dave. It's Alex from New York, New York. I have a question about deep fryers. Oh, yeah. I love deep fryers. Are countertop deep deep fryers a waste of time, the electric um, ones? Okay, okay. So waste of time is such a strong term, right? So I think that, like, uh, they can often be – it depends on what you're willing to put up with and what you're trying to get out of it. How many people you cook for on a regular basis? About eight. No, don't do it. No. Okay. No. You know what? Uh, like, uh, so, like, w- what I would do, um, what I do in New- my deep fryer at, at uh, you know, in New York City now. I took my my big deep fryer, my thirty gallon, my nice one, up to uh, up to Connecticut, and I have it outdoors. So I'm testing my my years long espoused theory of putting a professional deep fryer out- outside. And by the way, so far, good idea. By the way, people, so far, good idea. Um, I keep it covered, obviously, and I drain the oil, don't leave it in there, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I only use a stainless steel fryer there. At home now, the, the, the issue is the, the good thing about the countertop fryer is that you can walk away from it. How powerful is your stove? How what? How powerful is your range? I have no idea. It's a stock New York City apartment stove. Nah, so weak. Nah. So you might be – I mean, no offense. Weak. You might want to get uh, – 
See, here, here's the issue, right? Is that uh, the, the problem with those home uh, fryers is all they're giving you is uh, basic uh, thermostatic control, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're not really protecting the oil in a way that a professional deep fryer would be. Like you don't have a cold zone. Once you don't have a cold zone and you're, and you're, you know, you're having the issue where the oil is like cycling too hot and going around and you have burning particles at the bottom of the, of the fry bucket, you're – automatically you're not going to be in as good a shape as you uh, would be um, basically in any other circumstance. Uh, I, would, I would get an, uh, an induction burner, right, and use the induction burner as your, as your fry kettle because you can kind of set those uh, fairly nicely uh, and you can set them a little bit higher than you want and they'll kick in full blast when, it, when, uh, when they start uh, cooling down. Or you could just set it with the number. Mm-hmm. I actually wouldn't thermostatically control it because those things, unless you have like, a, like a, the meld or some new thing that can control the induction uh, accurately, the problem with uh, the old induction uh, temperature control things is it's based on a, like a little um, a thing embedded in the surface of the, of the, of the platen, which is not good for frying because it's, it's too slow. Uh, but anyway, an induction is nice and fast. You're not going to have problems with uh, ignition because you're not using it around an open flame, so it's inherently safer. And the thing is, is you can get a much larger kettle of oil going with one of those things than you can mm-hmm. with one of these countertop deep fryers because they're assuming that you want to make like three French fries, and they're also assuming that you know th- that they're going to get sued left, right, up, down, in the middle if they actually provided a fryer that was uh, big enough to accomplish anything kind of reasonable. Remember, when you're frying on a, on a pot in, in a kitchen, you want to be very careful to not overfill the the oil i have a, like a, a, an astoundingly powerful range and so i actually do a lot of my deep frying uh in new york in a wok but i have a burner that can handle a wok you know what i'm saying and so right. uh, you know and the good thing about a wok is that as it starts boiling and exp- even though it's shallow as it starts boiling and expanding the wok gets ever and ever larger so your odds of boil over in a wok are very very low and mm-hmm. the solids the burnt crap in a wok is like kind of uh condensed in kind of a little shallow spot in the bottom, and so I can scrape it out as I'm going. It's much harder in a regular pot to try to scrape that uh, stuff out of the bottom. Now, if you also like uh, Asian cooking and you know you're going to ha- live in a New York City apartment for a long time and you have your kitchen near a window, you might want to go invest in an actual uh, wok burner, pro- the induction wok burner. I've never personally used one, but I've heard that they're freaking sick, but they're expensive, and the other trick is, is you might need 220. I think the Almost all of them are 220 because they're strictly pro. But they they throw off very little heat for the amount of power that they have, and they would probably make a good deep fryer. But I haven't seen a lot of people use it for that application. But that's what you know. That's what I would be angling for if I knew that I couldn't beef up the gas because I didn't own the joint. You know what I'm saying? Maybe you own the joint. I don't know. In which case, if you own the joint, put in a good freaking range. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. And is the outdoor deep fryer actually worth spending all that money and time on? Is it better, or should I just stick with the pot on the stove? It depends on how what your like innate love of frying is. Like frying is such like a part of me that like for me it's worth having. And if you're ever going to do a party that's primarily fry for like twenty or thirty people, and you're going to do that even like two or three times a year, then having a professional deep fryer that just stays rock solid at the temperature that you want and can bang, mm-hmm. and can bang out 
you know, like like 10 pounds of fries an hour or better. That's not even – that's nothing. Like for a commercial fryer, that's nothing. For a home fryer, banging out 10 or 15 pounds of fries in an, in an hour is a pain in the butt. And remember, when I'm doing it, I'm really doing more like – I'll do like six pounds in like, in like not that long, wait a while for the next flight, another six pounds. And it's the ability to just – put a lot of product in and still maintain high quality of your oil that's the hallmark of one of these professional fryers and you can get like on the websites you can get a, a not not the best i don't have the best one but you can get like stainless steel kettle which is what you should going for tube fryer uh for not that much i think i mean it's expensive but i think that, i think you can get them under a grand i think i, sp- I spent less than a thousand on mine and uh and you know you have to convert it to run off of a propane tank and you can run them off of a 20 uh 20 uh, pound uh propane tank no problem uh probably not when it's extremely cold you probably have some problems then but um it, you know in normal kind of weather you know you, you can run it for a good a good length of time off of a single 20 pound and it's freaking awesome. But you have to be extremely safe. You have to know, you know, kind of your distance from your house and all this other kind of stuff. It's not something that you should do if you're not comfortable, like with, uh, you know, safety and like doing things to code. Gotcha. Well, this has been super helpful. Thank you so much. All right. Happy frying. Uh, okay. Uh, we got another question that we didn't answer. Did we, didn't, did we do the food safety one for uh, duck confit? Read it. Okay. Hey, Dave, Nasasi, Jack, and Co. I have a food safety question for this week's show. I'm visiting my parents this weekend and found two bags of duck confit in their second fridge. In the second fridge? Sounds <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, second fridge. <laughs> yeah, I have like a bar, a hotel bar fridge. <laughs> and you're thankful to have it. <laughs> yeah. You like it. You love it. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> that I made at Christmas. <laughs> wait, she, wait, they made they the found... fridge at Christmas? The coffee was made at Christmas. <laughs> Made at Christmas. Normally, I'd I'd have not problem serving confit that's this old, but I looked and realized the jelly never got taken out of the bags like it would have been had I made the confit traditionally. I gave the duck legs a traditional overnight cure with salt and spices, then vacuum sealed them with duck fat using a food saver style sealer. They were then cooked at 80 or 85 Celsius for 12 hours, iced down quickly, and have been refrigerated ever since. Because the jelly was still in the bag, I meant to transfer them to the freezer before I left at Christmas, but I guess I forgot and they're still in the fridge. The bags look like they still have a perfect seal on them, and there is no bloating or discoloration of or anything. That said, with traditional confit, I've always read that you need to remove the jelly for long-term storage. Would I be risking botulism or other contamination if I served them? Would you serve them to your family? Thanks, Jeremy. Okay. I would not throw away the confit. I'm just saying. It's not in, it's not in my soul to throw away the confit. But – uh, it, look, a lot depends on like kind of what your salt levels are and everything like this. But the good news about botulism, the great news about botulism, and you also can't guarantee, by the way, that you don't have uh, something bad growing in there uh, just because it, the pack hasn't uh, is still tight. Like they don't, they're not not all going to produce gas and be your friend that w- friend. In other words, be an indicator uh, that way. However, good news about botulism is that botulism toxin is itself. Uh, heat labile. You can destroy it. So what I would do is I would just take those bags back up to like, you know, uh, 180 or whatever and let them ride for like, uh, or even lower, you don't even need it that high, and let them ride all the way through to re-destroy all, anything that grew in there, any bacteria that grew in there, and any um, uh, botulism uh, toxin that's in there. Now, there are some uh, heat stable, right? So you got your heat stable and your heat labile. Why the hell do they have them run? So stupid. 
Stay bile, lay bile. Stay bile, lay bile, stay bile. It's stupid. It's like it's like inflammable and flammable. They both mean that catches on fire. That's the dumbest English. Like I love our language, but it's the dumbest. Anyway, so uh, I, like I, there are some uh, heat stable uh, enterotoxins. But I don't think that they're going to grow in those situations. Is there any way, Rebecca, while we're working, you can like do a quick uh, Googleodian on that thing and see whether or not uh, there are any heat-stable enterotoxins that will grow in a vacuum bag? Hey, or what about the chat room? Isn't that what the chat room's built for? Come on, chat room, hook me up. But yes, I would just heat the heck out. I would heat the heck out of it, and then I would, I would, I would eat it. Uh, you know. Also, I would, you know. I would pretend that I'm trying to be nice and I would just eat a bag myself and wait a day to prove that I was still good and I'd be like, now I'll serve it to my family after I already ate that delicious crispy piece of confit. Don't you like when the confit gets crispy on the outside? Mm-hmm. Love it. Mm-hmm. Love it. Do you know what? I don't like it when people don't crisp up the outside of the skin enough on the confit. It makes me so sad. I you know what I would crisp up the skin on a confit? Deep fry? Yeah. What? Sears all. Oh, Sears <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait, did you answer this one on Ros- Roselle? Ros- we do have another caller though. Oh, caller, you are on the air. Hey, Dave. This is Zed from New York. How you doing? Good. How are you? All right. I, I apologize in advance. I've been listening to your show from the beginning, and I'm only at episode 60, so these questions may have been asked recently. But uh, All right, Well, that's well, good. Uh, then I'll know the we'll answer. <laughs> so um, I'm going apple picking this weekend, and actually something I heard your show way back from you um, was someone called in asking about uh, being able to basically cook a, a – Bake an apple kind of in its shell, so soaking a peeled apple in Novo Shape or calcium lactate and then cooking it so that it's still crunchy on the outside but soft on the inside. Uh-huh. Um, so Modernist Pantry stopped selling Novo Shape, so I got some calcium lactate. Haven't been able to find any suggestions on what con- what percentage to use, how long to soak it, whether I can do it in the oven. Um, I, don't have a, um, I don't have any sous vide um, capabilities, so... Um, Looking for some ideas on that, and then I had a second question too. Uh, okay, let me think. So, so okay. So, you want to strengthen the pectin using lactate without an enzyme? I mean, uh, really? Uh, I mean, you could probably do calcium. Will do it. I'm just trying to think the best. You, you said you don't have a vacuum machine. I don't. Yeah, I would just needle. I would just like very finely like needle prick the outside of it. Make sure you're acidify it so it doesn't get all nasty, and then just uh, you know exclude all the air in a zippy and let it soak for a while, and then do like a, a quick a quick poach in the uh, calcium to try to get it into the like low low temp poach. So try to approach the temperatures that that people would use to do uh, to do a pectin methylesterase reaction, like the way Steingarten used to in potatoes and stuff like that. Um, which I forget, somewhere in the 60s, I think, or 60s or low 70s or somewhere in there. Um, and, you know, and then you can bring it up from there, but let it, let it soak it in that bag. Just try to exclude all the air in the zippy and, and do it that way and see whether or not you get, uh, you get a good uh, reaction. Why'd they stop selling Novo Shape? Not enough people buying it? Yeah. Hmm. 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 Oh. Come on, Modernist Pantry. I give, I'll look into it again, but give that a try. I mean, like, the, the, the things that people mainly use to, to strengthen things aren't actually calcium lactate. They're using things like um, calcium hydroxide, you know, uh, pickling uh, pickling lime. Um, and doesn't that make it bitter? And you just have to soak enough out of it to keep it, to keep it bitter? Yeah, so what you do is you soak it in that for uh, a while or 
while, and then uh, you you take it you take it out after after it's been cross linked, and then you just have it with regular calcium, soak that stuff out, and go. But that's what most people. I mean, that's what pickling lime is for. Um, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And also, yeah. the, the variety of apple that you use is going to is going to be. I mean, so I, you you could go. I think like you know that all of those ossified vegetable protocols are online, and you could do this a similar thing with an apple, I would guess. Uh, but then, yeah, you just want to get the kind of the the na- nastiness out. Right, right. Cool. And then my second question was, I'm planning on smoking and then frying a turkey. Uh-huh. Um, wasn't know, didn't know if you've done that before or had any tips. There's not a ton. I've watched a couple of videos online, but um, not a ton of uh, instructions in terms of how long and, and temperatures for the smoking portion. Oh, for the, oh well, you mean you're going to actually use the smoke as a cook? Yeah, I think I think that was the plan. I was trying to get it really smoky, but then still crisp, and then fry it for like ten, fifteen minutes at the end. That's kind of most of what I read said. Like, smoke it for two or three hours, um, and then fry it for like fifteen minutes. Um, if if I mean what I look, I mean like I, I like a, how temperature control is your smoker? You can get a good temperature control. Yeah, yeah, it's one of these pellet um, smokers that has a really accurate temperature control. Oh. I mean, to five degrees. But. Oh, all right. Well, five degrees is good enough. So if you can maintain, I mean, the thing is, if if you're going to deep fry it anyway, right? You could probably keep the moisture up and almost treat it like low temping smoking. You know what I'm saying? As some people do, or just get smoke it however you want. We'll cook it through. Cook it obviously at as low a temperature as you can to have it be uh, cooked the way you want it. I like mine. In the, it's really okay to cook the breast and the leg at the same temperature as long as you're not overshooting by a lot. In other words, like the ideal breast temperature for me is somewhere like 64, and the ideal uh, leg temperature for me is somewhere like 65, 66. So you're you're talking a couple of degrees difference, but really, if you uh, if you dry salt the breast area, especially like on the inside and stuff, uh, you can take it up to 66, and it's not going to kill anything. You know what I mean? It's going to not be quite as moist, but it'll still be fine. Uh, and and then uh, I would just let that sucker cool. Like, I would pull it out, let it flash off in the air, right? That's the trick. That's the trick to deep frying is let it, uh, uh, something that you've done uh, low temp or anything else. Let, let the sucker – and you probably already are going to get the surface tacky, right? Are you a pellicle guy when you smoke? Do you get a nice pellicle on stuff? Um, I haven't really looked into looked at it too much in the past, but I – I've read about it. Yeah, well, anyway, so, the, the, the trick is is that however, like, however you smoke it, right, before you deep fry it, you got to pull it out when it's still warm and let the surface get dry. That's the secret to deep frying anything is to have the surface be not wet if you want to get a crisp uh, surface on the outside. But you're not going to need to fry it for 15 minutes because it's already cooked. So especially yeah. if you're going to do it that same day, like I would jack the – see, most people when they're deep frying a turkey, what they're going to do is they're going to reduce the temperature of the oil, which is good for a safe thing, especially the way people deep fry it. People, people are lunatics with their turkey. They'll have like a wet turkey. They'll stick it in, and then like you get like this geyser of oil. The oil sprays up. They've overheated it. It falls on their burner, and then all hell breaks loose, right? But if you um, if you are already have a cooked turkey, you don't need to go low. You can go up at regular fry temperatures. Now this is also unsafe, but the way I do it because I don't bust out the big turkey fryer is uh, I always do like kind of a ladle fry. So I'll, I'll just ladle the hot oil over into a pot and keep it going. But that's its own that's its own bunch of um, of uh, sa- safety concerns. But you shouldn't need 15 minutes on, on the fry to get a nice uh, crispy skin, so long as it's dry. If it's wet, then you're going to need to lower your temperature on the fryer and fry it longer to get a crisp skin. But remember, you're, then you're also going to have that dry, overcooked, uh, like a couple of you know millimeters of uh, meat all the way around. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. 
anyway, uh, good luck with it. Uh, tweet us back. Let us know how it worked out. Yeah, for sure. Thanks. All right, cool. All right. I have a Twitter question for you. All right, what do you got? Well, there are a couple, but this one's exciting. Ooh. Does Dave have any updates on his new Booker and Dax product announcement that you ah. want to share? Ah. I don't know. Let me think about it towards a... Let me, let me, let me, let me, let me, let me think on it. Okay. Right, what's the, okay. What is your next question? Uh... What, ooh, his name is Nathan. He's headed to Mexico City in early March and wants to know what establishments he should visit for eating, drinking, and what he should bring back. Oh man! Well, what you should bring back is you should you should bring back a nixtamatic grinder and either a matate or or, uh, or mano if you have the if you're willing to bring it back. Like if you really look, if you've never been to Mexico before, I've only went once to real Mexico. The only other Mexicos I've been to has been like you know like Nogales and stuff. Which no offense to Nogales or any border town for that matter, it's kind of like you know, not you know. Whatever. I'm not going to say anything negative about Nogales. It's a hellhole. Uh, but at least it was in the early 90s. I don't know. Maybe it's awesome now. Rebecca, you ever been to Nogales? I have not. Liz? Can't say I have. Are you Are you guys denizens of any Mexican border towns? Tijuana. Well, how is it? Is it nice now or is it a hellhole? Um, I... It was it was a horrible experience. I think I had to go to the bathroom in a bucket, but that could be a grossly stereotypical statement. But it, it happened. You went to the bathroom in a bucket, huh? I had to go, and it was a long time to get past the border. So girls got to do what a girls got to do, right? Was it a fancy bucket? I think it was like a wooden bucket. Ooh, that's kind of fancy. <laughs> that's kind of fancy. That's kind of a strong statement. You're like this bucket. Is made of wood. I'm gonna poop. Vintage. In it. I'm gonna poop in it. That's awesome. <laughs> I like that. Uh, I, you know, I had the opposite experience. Well, I didn't, look, I, I didn't eat when I when I go to Nogales. You're, you know, you're in and you're out because you're like visiting relatives in Arizona and you're, you're boom in and out. But like uh, uh, in Mexico City, I ate whatever in the hell I wanted and I was 100 percent fine. Now, of course, an I, I'm an animal. Anastasia is fond of saying I am not a human being and so like I am not like you should not you broke your foot yesterday I broke my foot yesterday yes I broke my foot yesterday but that's a separate question uh, anyway but the uh, so what should you do you should get a Nixtamatic you need to go to uh, Merced the market there's a craft market whose name I forget that you should go to that has actually some kind of uh, good stuff you, but you should go to you need to go to Merced like every day and when you go there you need to have uh, this one lady whose name I forget her squash blossom quesadillas are like you know seppuku worthy like and they make you so angry they make you so angry uh, on the kind of how things work here in the US and you realize when you have what she makes or people of her ilk uh, and she has the good moss and everything. But when you have it, you realize kind of why uh, Mexican food is so terrible here. And it's because um, we aren't willing, I don't think, as a culture to pay uh, what it would cost to have an American make that style of food at that like level of ingredient quality here in the U.S. Do you know what I mean, Stas? It's like – it's like we we calculated it because I showed you the pictures. How much how much how much money would, would each one of those quesadillas have cost? Oh, like twenty dollars per quesadilla. Yeah, right. And you have to hire like a fancy, and then a fancy like chef who's going to charge you twenty dollars for a quesadilla is going to like fancify it up, and then it won't be the same kind of like simple, awesome thing that you just like you know like can eat and tell you plots over there. You know what I mean? And so I think it's like you're caught. You're caught in this kind of situation where it's almost almost impossible to do kind of just straight ahead stuff at the same quality that they do down down there. I don't know. I don't know it's great. Anyway, go to Merced uh, and uh, I, I, people in the Twitterverse here. Come on, with some good freaking things. And if, if I'll ask Fabulous too, you should ask Fabulous who uh, you know Fabian Vonhowski from Contra. He is from Mexico City. 
So I don't know. Anyway, uh, whoa. whoa, the Mac. Someone's Mac died and came back to life again. All right, Stas, you got any? Uh, uh, did you answer this, Roselle uh, hibiscus? Hibiscus? Yeah. No, give me the question. Okay, I have a one-pound bag of Roselle, a flower pod in the hibiscus family that I got from a local farm share in Houston. I'm interested in if you have any suggestions on how to preserve, use them in cocktails, as well as any suggestions on cocktails that would accentuate their character. Liquid Intelligence is lacking any mention of hibiscus, unless it was mentioned on one of the 10 pages that have been torn out of the Houston Public Library's copy. I've seen 8-ounce jars of Roselle pods in syrup sell for as much as $10 and plan on preserving some that way, but don't know if these pods would have to be prepared in any way being emerged in a Roselle syrup. I'm traveling to New York next week, and I'm looking forward to checking out Booker and Dax. Well, nice. Cheers, Jamie from Houston. Hey, Jamie from Houston. Uh, you know, I've never gotten the... Uh, I've never used fresh. I only have ever used uh, the dry. Uh, I've used the... I've had the ones in syrup. I'm presuming that they just preserve them by boiling them in a, in a sugar syrup. That's that's how they do them. But I have made a Booker and Dax. And in fact, there might still be on the menu... Uh, depending on how they feel right now, uh, it goes in and out of the menu, a hibiscus uh, drink. Now, hibiscus tea is obviously, uh, you know, the non-alcoholic drink is hugely popular, and it's also very popular in, in cocktails. Uh, what it brings, hibiscus, is like, a, like obviously besides its awesome color because Lord knows I love a pink drink, right? Yep. Yeah, I love a pink drink. Uh, people out there, when I say people... I mean, like, people who are worried about drinking pink drinks. Like, why are you so worried about drinking a pink drink? Do you, do you know a lot of dudes that are worried about drinking pink drinks? I, in theory, yeah. I do know. Dudes. The thing is, like, I maybe, like, when I was, like, 20, I would have been like, I'm not going to order the pink drink. I want to look manly. Now, I'm like, wow, I... Wow, I don't care what you think about what I drink. Like, that's the advantage of getting older and, I guess, being a drinks professional is I can really order whatever in the hell I want at any time, and no one's going to give me crap for it. Isn't that nice? Hey, Rebecca. What do you think of people that order, uh, like like a man that orders a pink drink? What do you think? I think I would like to shake his hand. Yeah? Liz, what are your thoughts? It takes a brave man to order a pink drink, but I'm sure there are plenty of really tasty pink drinks out there that even a guy can appreciate. Oh, many, 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 like many, many. Debbie, uh, <laughs> Any, anything with Campari. The Pink Panther. Uh, yeah, yeah Pink Nets. Panther, Booker Dead. Although it's not freaking pink, the, Derek. Uh, the pink, the onion one. Oh, the Debbie. Look, what I'm saying is, is you got to get over the, you got to get over the the color thing. You have Wait, but that's not as cool. there's three women here telling you that you should not worry about it. Uh, and you know what the problem is is that you have to rock it. If you order the pink drink, you can't be like, I'm sorry about the drink I ordered. Nobody likes someone who is sheepish about the stuff that they uh, uh, that they have that they order. Right? It's like same thing with clothing. Right? Like, you see the one dude with a peacock feather sticking out of his head, but if he rocks it, he rocks it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, on the hibiscus, one of the issues with hibiscus and alcoholic drinks is it can be slightly uh, astringent. The way that the acidity works, it can be a little bit uh, much in the back end. So when we use hibiscus, uh, we do infusions directly into the liquor, and then we milk wash it. So you just use a do a direct infusion of the uh, hibiscus slash roselle slash uh, whatever you want to uh, call it. Uh, into the liquor, uh, like a gin or a vodka is nice. Uh, have we done rum? I don't know if we've done rum. And then uh, just do a milk wash on it, and it'll suck some of that stuff uh, out. And the milk washing technique is in liquid intelligence, and then it, it mixes like a like a champ. Drink, 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 champ. I'm a drink champ, uh, for those of you who like that song. You have one minute. Uh, one freaking minute. All right, uh, I'll tell you a quick story. Alan, Alan from Apple, from, uh, from the UK, we need to talk about apples, but I'll give you a couple, an Apple thing. Also an update. Okay, 
Nastasi and I, Booker and Dax, are working on a centrifuge for home. I'll get let you. I'll just say that. And this this weekend, I have an interesting cider technique that uh, I came up with um, because I have this apple tree that I didn't know. So I I. I I use the centrifuge on the on the apples to spin out all the extra yeast, and it's good. I also my apple my cider technique is kind of crazy, so like we could talk about it next week if, if we have time. But I'll leave you with this one story. It's kind of cooking related because uh, like I, I like uh, in the winter time I cook with wood in my wood stove, right? Okay, mm-hmm. so there we go, wood cutting. So these freaking. Uh, so you know what a, like a log jack is? You know, like it's like a cant hook that fits into the, like a like clips onto the log, and you roll the log over so the logs off the ground, right? And so that you can chainsaw into it and and have your logs come off, right? Right? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and by the way, the moral of the story, in case that I forget at the end, the moral of the story is, is that it's a poor craftsman that buys crappy tools, right? It's a poor craftsman that buys crappy tools. Now, if you're going to buy a tool, use it once. And then never use it again. Then roll the dice and buy a crappy tool. But if you if you plan on using it all the time and you buy a crappy tool, you're a dunce. I'm a dunce. So anyway, so I buy this log jack. I buy the cheap one, which is weird. I spent like you know like months trying to figure out what chainsaw I was going to get. I got an old like professional Husqvarna used, very good price. Anyways, so uh, so this log jack, right? The first time I use it, it bends. I'm like crap. And so like that now I'm going down. I need to start cutting firewood because it's fall, right? So I put the log jack on, I put, and it won't pull the log over center anymore. So the log keeps flopping down, right? So here's what I do. Here's what I do. This is, this is teaching me. This is, this is the world teaching me not to be a dunce. So I take the log jack and I jam it down and I'm like, I'm, so I cut a small log off that I can get to without burying my bar into the ground and dulling my blade. And I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I have a, you know, the mask on and everything. I'm going to put the, I'm going to put the log jack down. I'm going to sit on it. Sit on it in, in a freaking log pile and brush. I'm going to sit on this freaking log jack. Already people who do this for a living know I'm a jerk. And, like, and I'm going to shove this piece of log under it so that the log itself can act as its own log jack, right? <laughs> but I'm like all of a sudden as I'm down on the ground, my butt on the ground, and I'm shoving a log underneath of a pile that I've just lifted off the ground that hasn't been lifted off the ground in years because this was a blowdown from Sandy that I'm trying to chop up. For some reason it hasn't rotted yet. And I see on the inside of my helmet – uh, like a hornet or a yellow jacket. And then all of a sudden, my body goes on fire. Now, I've got chaps on. I've got a protective helmet. And they have zoomed out of the ground up into my clothes and all in my helmet. And I throw the helmet up, and I'm running up the driveway, like, trying to unbuckle my chaps. My chaps around my ankles. I'm slapping my head, slapping my back. I got, like... I got like 15 bites from these suckers. Oh and I was just like, you're on freaking fire. And the entire way up... At first, I start screaming for someone to come help me, like, rip my clothes off. And then I'm like, idiot, why did I buy the bad log jack? Why did I buy the bad freaking log jack? And I could not retrieve my helmet for two days because I disturbed their nest so much that I couldn't get anywhere near that freaking helmet. My wife went down to look at the helmet, and she got stung oh just getting God. near the freaking helmet. Oh so I, I poisoned God. the hell out of the helmet, and I can get it next week. But my point is, don't buy the crappy tool. Cooking issues. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.